Our Father in heaven, just as we have sung, uh, we pray again, Father, that you would please uh, speak to us today through your word. We rely on your spirit to be at work in our hearts and our minds, uh, to renew our minds, to change our hearts, that we may be those who live in faith and obedience to uh, your Son, our Lord, our Savior, and our King, Jesus. We pray, Father, that you will speak to you. Your church is built, and the earth and, and the earth is filled with your glory. And I pray for myself that you help me to speak with clarity and uh, courage that comes from your word. And pray for my brothers and sisters and my friends here, that you help them to hear uh, this word, not as the word of man, but word from the true and living God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you noticed how good our word is in selling? Think about your morning, this morning. From the time that we got out of bed to the time that you arrived here in Smack, how many sales pitch have you already heard or already received? In the morning papers, on your cereal box, in your emails, on Facebook, and as you drive on the billboards, on the buntings, and even on waste. Don't you find it amazing just how hard the world tries every day to sell to us? Every day the world sells to us all kinds of things. But do you notice that the sales pitch and the product is more or less the same? If only you have enough power and money and toys and sexual pleasures, you will be fulfilled. Basically, the world repeatedly appeals to us self-indulgence, self-reliance, and self-fulfillment. Just three products. It sounds boring, and yet our world is so good at it that it doesn't. It has endless slick and cool ideas to win our hearts, to win our love, to our trust, and to even win our obedience. Now, have you ever wondered why? Why is the world so good and so aggressive at this? Well, God in Revelation, if you have been around here for a while, is like a train mechanic. He opened up the hood, not of our car, but of our world. He shows us what is really going on on the inside of the world. What is really happening in our world and where is the world heading? He does so by showing us visions, visions to perceive our world beyond what it looks like on the surface. Visions to understand our world not just metaphysically, but spiritually. One of the most important visions that was shown to us already is in Revelation 12. Do you remember what we saw there? We saw that Satan was defeated already by the cross of Christ. And that defeated Satan is very furious, and he's very desperate, and he's fruitlessly attacking Christians all the time. Satan's beast was portrayed to us in Revelation 13. He attacks Christians with power and with persecution. And that has been true throughout the ages and around the world. Satan works behind many governments and many religious bodies to intimidate believers into worshipping them instead of Jesus. They say, renounce your faith or you'll be ostracized and you will suffer and you will die. Today, in Revelation 18, we will see another angle of attack that Satan has. You will have noticed that this chapter is all about Babylon, the great city. 
through Babylon, Satan attacks Christian the soft and gentle way, by seduction. Satan's aim is that you and I love and trust and obey anything but Jesus. Earlier in chapter 3, we have already seen him using this trick, if you remember, in the church of Laodicea. So here in chapter 18, we get a spiritual insight into why our world is so darn good and aggressive in selling to us each day, persuading us at all costs to self-indulge, to self-rely, and to self-fulfill. It is because Satan, the father of all lies, is desperately seducing us. And this chapter is written, as you can see in the summary box in your outline, it is written to expose us to Satan's seductive tactics and to warn us not to get entangled with the present evil, self-absorbed, luxury-obsessed, immoral world order. And this is in view of its godlessness, impending judgment and wedding feast, and the coming wedding feast. Basically, it's telling us, come out of Babylon and rejoice in her judgment. I'm sorry that that's a mouthful of summary, but that's the best I can do. But let me show you now how I came to that conclusion from the passage. Start with verse 2, chapter 18, verse 2. It says there, he called out in a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Babylon. Now, let me ask you. What do you imagine Babylon to be like? I mean, during the Bible reading earlier, what picture of Babylon appeared in your minds? Let me guess. Hannah might have Azkaban in her mind. Maybe. Any one of you, hands up, if you were thinking of Las Vegas or Macau, New Orleans or Pattaya. Was it a dark and smoky city with neon lights and graffiti that you saw? Streets filled with brothels and casinos and strip clubs? Anyone here connected Babylon with Melbourne or Vancouver or Auckland? Well, last week in chapter 17, we have already been introduced to Babylon, right? Babylon there was described as a mystery woman, the mother of prostitutes. And perhaps that's why some of you were thinking of Pattaya. Well, now that you have read much more about Babylon or been read to us about Babylon in this chapter, do you think Pattaya fits her descriptions? Well, let's see. Babylon seems to be a renowned city. It has strong relations with world leaders and businessmen and traders. Verse 12, there is trading of all kinds of goods, not just marijuana, ecstasy, or porn, but comprises of a variety of sophisticated goods, like expensive woods, pearls, and spices, and chariots. Repeatedly, Babylon is regarded as a great city, a mighty city. She is wealthy and luxurious and prosperous. Many around her benefited and grew rich from her wealth. Verse 22, Babylon seems to be a lively, economically, and vibrant, cultured city, populated by harpies and musicians, craftsmen of any crafts. It seems to be a busy industrial center with its own meals, meals. 
and well lit into the nights. A comfortable and safe city where people get married and start families. Now let's think again. How does Babylon look like for you? Well, Pattaya may show some characteristics of Babylon, but so does Melbourne or Vancouver or even KL. So let's first recap what does Babylon symbolize in the first place. Team Nichols last week helpfully pointed us that what Babylon symbolizes. It symbolizes godless, arrogant humanity working together in rebellion against God so that man can become God ruling the world without him. In John's days, Babylon is manifested in the Roman Empire, which is a code name for Babylon. Babylon is a code name for Roman Empire, the other way. In previous ages in the Bible, we have seen it expressed in the Babel, in Sodom, in Tyre, in Sidon, in Babylon, in Nineveh. Chapter 18, verse 7 captures the essence and the attitudes of Babylon very well. Take a look. 18.7 says, She glorified herself and lived in luxury. She says in her heart, I sit as a queen, I'm no widow, and mourning I shall never see. The word luxury here includes attitudes of self-indulgence and arrogance. Babylon sees herself as a supreme queen. She is like God. She answers to no one, and she and she alone call all the shots in life. She decides. She's so pumped up with her confidence that she believes she will be happy forever and ever. It doesn't seem to her at all that she could possibly collapse anytime soon or ever. And not only does she think this way, she sways and then she influences the people around her to think and live this way as well. Take a look at 18 verse 3. All nations have drunk the passion of her sexual immorality. Kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. Merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of a luxurious living. Do you notice that the words, here, words used here are pretty strong words? Drunk, the passion of a sexual immorality, committed immorality with her. These very strong words. So strong that I think it is easy for us, and probably for the original readers as well, not to identify with them at all. <laughs> Thinking that God is probably referring only to those in Las Vegas or Pattaya, and not to us. But we have to remember that sexual immorality is used repeatedly in the Old Testament to signify spiritual idolatry and unfaithfulness. That is, instead of staying faithful to Yahweh their God, Israel worshipped idols and trusted foreign gods. And for that, Israel, in the eyes of God, is a prostitute, is a whore having committed spiritual adulteries with idols. Listen to what Alan Storkey, in his book, Christ and Consumerism, had to say. He says this, Christianity, despite all the warnings in the gospel, has not even seen the challenge, the temptation, the lies, the enemy. We must consider sometime how completely 
the Christian community is unable to discern what is seeking to be the God of this age. Do you remember what the Christians in the Laodicean church were saying? Anyone? It's been a few weeks back. Let me read to you. In 317, the Christians in Laodicean church were saying, I'm rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. The Christians there were completely blinded to the adultery, the idolatry that they were committing. They probably happily go to church every Sunday. And there are also those within the church who try to persuade Christians that compromise with worldly idolatry is actually okay. You remember Zezebel in the church of Thyatira? That's exactly what she did in chapter 2 of Revelation. Well, the point is this. I hope you start to see now why God had to tell his people that Babylon's doom is certain. So come out of her. That is, God actually had to be telling them this in the face. Babylon is doomed. Please come out. Why? Isn't it obvious? No, it's not obvious. I think it's because they don't see Babylon as such. Firstly, the Christians may not see their closeness with Babylon and her culture as adulterous and idolatrous in God's eyes. They wouldn't have thought of luxury and materialism in religious categories, that it promotes and cultivates self-indulgence and self-fulfillment. They wouldn't have seen trading market as an idol temple. They wouldn't have seen a shopping center as a brothel for their adulterous acts with the idols. But Revelation 18 deliberately portrays involvement with Babylon as spiritual adultery. Secondly, Babylon's seduction is so strong and good that people are disillusioned. Yes, she sins, but even when her sins are piled up as high as heaven, she still seems to be all well. She continues to live in luxury, and so does her friends. Babylon just seems to be so secure, so prosperous in her godlessness. Perhaps she's right. There is indeed no God and no judgment. Christians in John's days had to be told, Babylon is fallen, come out of her. And Christians today had to be told as well, Babylon is fallen, come out of her, lest you partake in her sins and you be judged as well. For God says in verse 2, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. John is again using Old Testament imageries here. He uses it from the prophets, particularly Jeremiah 50, 51 and Isaiah 13. He makes the point that Babylon's doom is certain, is definitely happening. She will be utterly destroyed, left desolated completely. And then verse 5, he says, Her sins are heaped up, heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double, por- mix a double portion for her cup she mixed. 
Verse 7, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a measure of torment and mourning. These are the words of the Lord. The point is that judgment is certain and it will fit the offense. Babylon's will pay in full and more for her godlessness. It will be more than an eye for an eye. She's going to get it. And this judgment will come suddenly and quickly in a single hour. Verse 8, it says, Her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine. Verse 10, In a single hour, your judgment has come. Verse 17, In a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. Verse 19, The great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, in a single hour, she has been laid waste. Now, think about it. The strong and mighty Babylon suddenly destroyed. In a single hour? Really? Come on, anyone here believe that? In John's day, the people would look at the mighty Colosseum, that high arm, and they will say, no way. But is it really that hard to believe that all human powers which opposes God could be destroyed suddenly in an instance? Is it that hard to believe? I thought about it, and I thought that even within my own lifetime, I've seen how suddenly the strong can fall. These examples I'll quote may not directly parallel evil to an evil Babylon, but they remind me just how drastically things can change overnight. In 2002, within a year, the big, four became big, the big five became big four, with the fall of Arthur and Anderson. In 2014, literally within an hour, if not minutes, the Boxing Day tsunami wiped off successful holiday resorts in Thailand's Potong Beach, killing thousands. Further back, in 1997, Hong Kong property market crashed overnight. House prices plunged almost 70%. Many lost their supposed stable jobs. Some committed suicide. Within a few days, things can change. So should it surprise us that all of God's enemies, all who opposes him can fall suddenly? Because God's judgment has come upon them. Judgment day has come. In fact, verse 2 is written to remind us that of course it can happen. Take a look at verse 2 again. It says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. If you have read Isaiah, we know that it's a direct quotation again. It echoes Isaiah 21, which announces the capture of Babylon by Cyrus in 539 BC. Babylon was great, it fell. As it had happened before, it will happen again, just as God has pronounced. So the point can't be clearer. Babylon will certainly fall, no matter how great she looks right now. All who are against Jesus and his people and his kingdom will fall no matter how mighty that may seem right now. The present evil, self-absorbed, luxury-obsessed, 
immoral world will fall, no matter how prosperous they look right now. And when that happens, those who love her, who trust her, who rely on her, feed off her, will cry and weep and mourn and wail. Have you heard the saying, if you can't beat them, join them. If you can't beat them, join them. It's very easy, isn't it, to think that way? Just think about the church in John's days. They were persecuted and they were harassed and the persecutors seem to be getting away with it. Their sins are piling up and they continue to live prosperous lives as ever. The Christians must have been so tempted to just switch sides. Not only will the persecution cease, their city will make them rich and make them comfortable, secure. They can finally self-indulge, self-sufficient and self-fulfilled. That must have been incredibly tempting for them. And that is why Revelation 18 is written to them. To appeal to them, to remind them, to see the realities of the situation and to act accordingly. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, God says. Come out of her, my people. All of Babylon's disillusioned friends, they will weep on that day. But you, my people, you rejoice. Verse 20, it says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and prophets, apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. You rejoice. Richard Buse wrote this reflection on Revelation 18. Let me read that to you. He says, We don't belong to Babylon, there's Christians. We don't belong to Babylon. It exhibits all the signs of atrophy and decay. We will not succumb to the keys of death offered by the harlot of revelations. Instead, we look for another way of life and another city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Richard also wrote a hymn with these lyrics. Who would want an empire built for just a fleeting season? King for a single day to make ourselves a name? Faced with eternity, we seek a greater reason, living for a city that outlasts all earthly fame. Oh God, make that vision grow in me. Revelation 18 is written to persuade Christians today, you and I, to come out of Babylon. Followers of Jesus are in the world, but we are not of the world. There must be purity and spiritual separation from worldliness. We are citizens of heaven, not citizens of this world. We do not love and trust and obey what the world loves and trusts and obey. Why? Well, firstly, because the world is godless. Its ways are evil and unrighteous. And secondly, because the world is fleeting. It is passing away. I grew up in Singapore. Everything looks new there. When I come to Malaysia, I realize that this is reality. You paint the walls, it decays. You put the cement up, it decays. The world is decaying, no matter how much we paint it. And thirdly, because we have something far better to love, 
we have, far, we have something that is far better to love, to trust, and to obey. Take a look at 19 verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged for her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke of her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. We do not love and trust and obey what our world love and trust and obey. Why? Well, because we are not Babylon. Yes, we are a gathered community, and yes, we are united people, but we are not united in godlessness to reach the heavens to overthrow our God. But we are united by the blood of Jesus, our Savior, our King. We are united to worship and to praise the true and living God, who, who alone deserves our allegiance. 19 verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude like a roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the mighty reigns, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Again we ask, We do not love and trust and obey what the world loves, trusts and obey. And why? Well, because we are not Babylon. We are Christ's precious bride. We are his church whom he so loved that he died and he gave himself for. Friends, the heart of the bride can belong only to Jesus and Jesus alone. The heart of the bride can belong to only Jesus and Jesus alone. The day will come that we will meet Jesus face to face. But as we walk down that aisle to meet Jesus, no matter how long that walk will take, even if 10,000 years goes by, do not have a second look to the left or to the right of the house on things that Babylon offers. But fix your eyes on Christ, our Savior, our King, our Jesus, who died for us. We are not Babylon. We are Christ's precious blood, bride. What does this have to do with us? How are we to respond as a church? Well, I think as a church, we realize that like the church in John's days, we live 
in a world, in a country, in a city that's all around the world, not just in KL, where the characteristic is like Babylon. It is godless and is seeking to live in luxury and finding satisfaction in everything except God. And all of us are guilty, are sinful in one way or another in the way that we find satisfaction and we are self-indulged in things rather than God. But what materialism is doing is harming not just us, it's harming God and us. It's harming God because it's robbing God of the glory that he deserves. And it's harming us because it's giving us less than what God has to offer. The true satisfaction that God has to offer, materialism and luxury comes in as a counterfeit God, telling us that we can get satisfaction from them. But you and I know, why is Apple so successful? Because it moved from 3G to 4S to 5 to 6 to 7 to 8. It's fleeting. It's running out of ideas. It needs to keep buying us again and again, and yet it doesn't offer satisfaction. Same with our careers. We think that we get that name on our door. We can get satisfied. I never had a name on my door, but I have friends who have a name on the door, and they're not satisfied still. These are things that you and I know. That the privilege of the gospel is that we are fellow sinners. We do not need to pretend that we are not materialistic. We do not need to pretend that we are not finding luxury, indulgence in luxury. We confess to each other that we have these sins. And these sins are nailed to the cross of Christ. As Christians, we are not perfect. But as Christians, we are committed to saying no to worldly things. We are committed to saying no to sinful things. So we help one another. We point to one another when we see how Satan manifests himself and tempt us away from him. We warn one another and we help one another to put to death the areas of life that we find indulgences in. And we run to Christ. And that's what we do. So let me pray for one another, shall we? Let's do that. Our Father in heaven, temptations are frequently subtle in our modern societies, everywhere around the world, in big cities, not to mention in, in KL. Father, we pray for ourselves as a church, that you help us to be vigilant and watchful, that you grant us the wisdom to discern the true nature of spiritual warfare, that you may help us to see and expose Satan's schemes and temptations. We thank you, Father, that we are those who are children of the light. We live in the light. Yes, we sinned, but we are those who can confess our sins. We can be open to our sins because Christ has dealt with our sins. So we pray for ourselves as a church here that you help one another, that we help one another, that we do not hide the little idols that we in our hearts because we are, not, we are not ashamed of them because we know that Christ has dealt with them. We do not look down on someone else who has idols in their hearts because we know that God has dealt with them in Christ. And so has God dealt with our idols in our hearts. So, Father, we pray that um, we may be a community living and enjoying the grace that we have in Christ and the forgiveness in him, that together, Father, that we will find satisfaction and pledge our allegiance and obedience and trust 
uh, to Christ, our King alone, that all of Satan's schemes that he has against us uh, will be put off. And we pray that you may give us a vision, Lord, a vision to see the world for what it is, a vision to see um, what Satan is doing in our world. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen.